The reading this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. I've called this message, Without Equal, The Man Who Is God. A little boy was drawing pictures on the floor one day as his mother was working. She said to him, What are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. But no one knows what God looks like, she said. Well, they will when I'm finished, said the boy. No one needs to be confused anymore because in Jesus, we see the exact image of God the Father. And that's the picture that Paul wanted to draw for the Colossians in these few verses. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the king of the universe who reveals to us your truth about yourself through your word and by your spirit. Help me, Lord, to speak carefully and clearly as we seek to know you better in the person of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever known someone for a long time, maybe you've taken them for granted, and then for some reason you realise that you had grossly underestimated their worth. With Jesus as the grand subject, this could have been how the Colossians might have felt after reading these eight verses written to them by the Apostle Paul. It's like Paul intends to remind them of Jesus' extraordinary resume. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever applied for a job, you will have most likely submitted a resume. And you would know that a person's resume reveals two important things. Firstly, who a person is, their qualifications, skills, and abilities. And secondly, what experience they have and what they can do. 
Can they be trusted for what's required? So your qualifications, who you are and what you've done. By submitting a resume, a person can be identified as not sufficiently qualified, adequately qualified or overqualified. Here are three examples of people who are more than qualified for what they currently do. The first person is a professionally trained primary school teacher. She is currently not working in a school and is instead picking lychees. I think most people would consider her overqualified for lychee picking. Have you ever tried to control, let alone teach, a class of 30 Year 2 students? Or pick a lychee? The skill set and management strategies are quite different, wouldn't you agree? You'd say she's more than qualified for lychee picking. The second person was a pilot for Virgin Airways. Due to his circumstances, he is currently planting ginger just south of Gympie instead of flying a large aeroplane. Again, his qualifications allow for more complicated tasks. He might also be considered more than qualified for ginger planting. Sure, you might be able to safely park your car in the car park, but when was the last time you landed a Boeing 777 so that your passengers survived your terminal parking? Again, the skill set and management strategies are somewhat different to planting ginger. And you also might know people who are currently overqualified for what they do. And yes, the third person that we are going to be focusing all of our attention on this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ, the exceptionally qualified man who is also God. One reason for this is obvious. We're in church and we want to learn more about Jesus because we want to become more like Jesus. In 1 John 2 verse 6, it reminds us that if we say we are his, we must follow the example of Christ. And if you're not already a follower of Jesus, there is no better place for you to be than here learning, maybe for the first time, about how good it is to know the Lord Jesus. I'm glad you're here with us as we are all reminded to keep our faith stable and steadfast in the sufficiency of Jesus. It seems that some of the people at the church in Colossae, from where we get today's Bible reading, might have forgotten who Jesus is and what he's done. Their faith was in danger of shifting focus and they were clearly misunderstanding Jesus' resume. Some were becoming deceived into thinking that Jesus wasn't sufficient for them. And we can quickly fall into that same way of thinking too, especially when life gets difficult or seems out of control. Is Jesus really enough? Or do we need something more? That's the question that was on the minds of the Colossians, and Paul's main thrust in this letter was to re-establish Jesus as the only foundation for the Christian life. So point number one, a mistaken view of the Lord Jesus puts us on shaky ground. Many people these days have very different views of Jesus. They think they understand his resume, but do they really? And I don't mean to be disrespectful using the term resume, but if a resume is about who a person is and what they are capable of doing, then everywhere we look, the Lord Jesus is revealing himself to us. Just take a look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
We call it general revelation. God reveals himself through his handiwork. That gives us a lot of clues about who he is and his mighty power. Through the Old and New Testament parts of the Bible, he defines who he is and what he's done through the history of mankind. In Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Special revelation also includes how he's revealed himself as God's spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. God in flesh reveals who he is and what he's done while walking about the earth in a body like ours. It's like God wants us to know him really well, wouldn't you say? It seems that in Paul's days, the Colossians had misunderstood who Jesus was. But they wouldn't be the only ones who have underestimated him. It's been going on now for more than 2,000 years. From the book Vintage Jesus, the author points out some of the more easily accepted facts about Jesus. His first name, Jesus, means God is our saviour. Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He lived about 2,000 years ago. Some might say his biography is rather simple. Before he was 30, he spent years working a job as a carpenter with his, with his earth dad, Joseph. He never travelled more than a few hundred miles from home. He never married or had children. He never ran a large company and he didn't make a lot of money. And he never wrote a book. However, he is the most influential and significant person in the history of the world. And there is nothing contentious here. <clears throat> Many consider him a great man of history. So significant is he, though, that we divide our calendar around the life of Jesus Christ into BC and AD. And our major holidays like Christmas and Easter are all about this man. But why? More songs have been sung to him, more paintings painted of him, more books written about him than anyone else who has ever lived. And when it comes to Jesus, he had this important question for his followers. In Matthew 16, he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he goes on, and who do you say that I am? And it's a personal question that each one of us must answer. What would you say if Jesus asked you that same question? We know that the Bible will reveal this answer to us, but here are some of the mistaken views on who some people say that Jesus is. In the world of the cults, you will hear a variety of things. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness person, they will say that Jesus is not the creator God. Instead, he is a created being. If you ask a Mormon person, they will say that he is ultimately a man who became God and we can all be like him. We can become gods too and get our own planet to populate. Interesting. How about the other religions? Well, they teach various things about Jesus. If you ask your Muslim neighbour, they will say that he is a prophet, but he is inferior to the superior prophet Muhammad. Buddhists will say that the Buddha was a more enlightened man than Jesus, but Jesus was a fairly enlightened man. Everyone has an opinion. The question that we're going to be answering is, who is Jesus according to what the Bible reveals? And today we're going to hear from a man named Paul, who, interestingly, didn't like Jesus at all when he started out. You could say that Paul was a man who had a mistaken view of Jesus, 
which put him on shaky ground. He was not a fan of Jesus. He hated Christianity. He opposed, arrested, and murdered Christians. But then God turned his world upside down and opened his eyes to who Jesus really is. He then, convert, he then got converted by God and became a pastor and wrote this treasured letter that we are learning from today. Yes, friends, God is in the business of changing people's hearts, even Paul's, even mine, and even yours. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. When he's writing this book, Paul's writing to the people who live at Colossae in modern-day Turkey, and he's in jail while he's writing it. But we can thank God for Epaphras, literally. If it wasn't for Epaphras, this letter may not have been written. Why? Well, it seems that Epaphras was so concerned about the people's mistaken view of Jesus that he travelled more than 2,000 kilometres from Colossae to Rome to speak with Paul about it. And that's the equivalent of Brisbane to Adelaide before cars. Some there in the church were known to be teaching heresy, which is contrary to biblical truth. Firstly, they were denying that Jesus was truly human because they considered everything that was matter to be evil and that only God was good in spirit. They viewed Jesus as one of many lesser spirit beings that came from God. The idea that God himself would become a man was absurd to them, and so they denied him as God. They had their equation wrong about salvation and how to be made right with God. Instead of believing that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, full stop, they thought that it was a case of Jesus plus other special things equals what was needed. For instance, they believed that a mystical superior knowledge beyond that of the gospel was necessary. It included worshipping angels and keeping certain Jewish laws. Their salvation equation was wrong because Jesus plus anything just doesn't work. It was Paul in his letter to the Galatians who was very clear about adding to or changing the gospel in any way. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. It's trusting in Christ alone that can bring us into a right relationship with God, with no add-ons. You could say our relationship with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. He is and does all that is necessary on our behalf. The false teachers at Colossae had a very mistaken view of the Lord Jesus. And Paul knew that it had to be corrected before it took hold. You've probably heard of preventative medicine that people use so they don't get sick. This was Paul's version of preventative theology so that the Colossians didn't get spiritually sick on a mistaken view about Jesus. In today's era, we can also be mistaken into thinking that we need Jesus plus something else to be truly saved or acceptable in God's eyes or approved of in the eyes of other people. Jesus plus certain spiritual gifts? No. Jesus plus pray to Mary? No. Jesus plus social justice? No. 
Jesus plus prosperity or signs or miracles and wonders? No. Jesus plus political correctness? Definitely no. Anything plus actually subtracts from the absolute sufficiency of Jesus and leads us towards confidence in ourselves. And it's not ourselves that we should elevate in our thinking. It's the Lord Jesus. And this is exactly where Paul continues in his letter to them. So after his greeting, his thanksgiving and prayer, Paul instantly addresses this issue about the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus in two ways. Firstly, who he is, and secondly, what he's done. It's like he's saying to the Colossians, take a proper look at his resume. It seems you are mistaken about the Lord Jesus. Point two, a proper view of who he is strengthens our faith in Jesus. So Paul starts with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You might have heard the saying before, like father, like son. You could say about Jesus, as the father, exactly the son. Jesus shows to us the mirror image of God, not different or less in any way. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, you might have woken up this morning and been brave enough to look in the mirror. I did, and I got a fright. Whatever was looking right back at you, though, was your responsibility. So you may have washed your face, combed your hair, and brushed your teeth, hoping to improve on your image. The mirror doesn't make mistakes, though. It only reveals perfectly what it's reflecting, unless your mirror is broken, and then you need to get a new mirror. But a new mirror won't change what's reflected in it. The point is, Jesus reflects perfectly to us the image and character of God. In your Bible, in John 14, 19, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact replica of God the Father. The unseen God becomes seen through his Son. God's work is seen in creation, but to understand him as a personal God who loves who is just and holy and who died for our sins, includes revealing himself as a person. We no longer need to speculate. So Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus is the exact replica of God. Is this how you know him? He is also the ranking ruler over all creation. The word firstborn in verse 15 comes from the Greek word prototokos, and it signifies priority. In that culture, the firstborn was not necessarily the oldest child, referring to birth order, but to rank. The prototokos possessed the inheritance, honour and authority. Listen to Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. We tend to think of firstborn as, I was here first, I get to go first. But that wouldn't fit here. Because Adam and Eve were born thousands of years before God the Son came in bodily form as a baby lying in a manger. Again, Prototokos tells us that Jesus has priority over all. 
is ranked over all. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that God appointed Jesus heir of all things. He is number one. And knowing the importance of right thinking about who Jesus is at a very early age, the great theologian Colin Buchanan wrote a song simplifying these verses so that even children can begin to understand these truths. But instead of calling the song Prototokos, which he could have, he called it Jesus number one. It goes like this. I won't sing it. Jesus is number one, right at the top where he belongs. Who he is and what he's done make Jesus number one. He's the son of God, Jesus number one. Yeah. He rose from the dead, Jesus number one. He'll rule eternally, Jesus number one. He has supremacy, Jesus number one. And that's a song written for children that proclaims the Lord Jesus as supreme and without equal. Once we figure out that Jesus comes first, friends, all aspects of our lives can then be properly addressed from there. So Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus is both the exact replica of God and the ranking ruler over all creation. And they wondered whether he was enough. Friends, I wonder whether you know Jesus as the ranking ruler over all aspects of your life. As if that wasn't enough, Paul continues to say that Jesus' resume also states in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, Jesus is the creator and owner of all. If something is created, it belongs to the creator. It exists for the creator. It returns to the creator. It is the possession of the creator. And will give an account to the creator. And that is everyone and everything. Angels, spirits, authorities, everything. The entire history of the universe is going to a throne. And on that throne will be seated the Lord Jesus. Everyone and everything will pass before him. Because all comes from him. All belongs to him, and all will give an account before him. That is the Lord of Lords Jesus and the King of Kings Jesus. Do you know him? John 1.3 reminds us that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hearing this might make you uncomfortable, but we do not live an independent, autonomous life. Believing that would be like playing pretend. And it robs us of the truth that we were created by him, we were created for him, we were created to be in relationship with him, and we will give an account to him. So Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus is not a lesser created being, he is the creator and owner of everything, which includes them. Jesus' resume also says in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John reminds us in John 1, 1 and 2, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
It's another way of saying Jesus is eternal. And to put it most simply, whatever exists, Jesus was before that. God the Son is not part of creation. He is the creator. You and I had a beginning, and in this life we will have an end. God has no beginning, God has no end, and his name is Jesus. The good news about Jesus being eternal is that he has already gone ahead to prepare an eternal home for those who know him as their ranking ruler. He knows what lies on the other side of the grave, and we can trust him in our greatest hour of need as we exit this temporal life and are promoted into the eternal life that only he can give us. How can we be sure of this? Because it's exactly what Jesus explained to his anxious followers about 2,000 years ago. In your Bible, in John 14, 1-4, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This Jesus who lives in eternity, who once entered into human history, has defeated death and has gone ahead to prepare a place for us with him. He is the one who is waiting for us, knows when we will go to him, and will surely welcome us home according to his will. We have this hope and there is no need to fear. Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus' existence is eternal. They have surely underestimated Jesus' resume if they thought he was only a created angel-like being who emanated from God. There's a song that says, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's okay, I'm not going to sing it. But to be more precise, it's the whole universe that he holds together. Planets, gravity, galaxies, tides, atoms, the whole universe and you. Sometimes it can feel like the whole world has gone crazy and falling apart and we can start to panic and fret. Just because it feels like things are out of our hands, it doesn't mean that things are out of his hands. Paul reminds the Colossians here that in him all things hold together. Jesus is our sustainer. In John 16:33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Marriages, family, businesses, society and relationships can all seem like they're falling apart at times, but he is the sustainer. In him all things hold together. We aren't always rescued from the trouble but he has promised to sustain us through it. How do we know? Because God cannot lie and he does not break his promises. 
Paul reminds us again in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you notice it's not our purpose? It's his purpose. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. So Paul also reminds the Colossians that Jesus is the sustainer of all things, and only, Jesus, only a Jesus who is God could fulfill the role of holding all things together. Again, in Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, do you sense the peace of knowing the Lord Jesus as the exact replica of God, the ranking ruler over all, the creator and owner of everything, and who is eternal, the one who holds all things together? Or do you still think he's just a great man? What about Jesus' place in the church, Paul? Well, Jesus' resume also says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This metaphor of Christ as the head and the body and the church as his body is helpful for us to understand who rules and runs things in the church. Our head functions in the human body to determine our growth and our guidance for the rest of our body. Those decisions all come from our head, not our big toe, not our belly button, and not our heart. And the purpose is to promote maturity in how we function. That's what our brain does. Jesus provides the leadership for our spiritual growth and guidance in how we follow him as a body of believers. In Ephesians 5.23, Paul is crystal clear about Jesus' position in the church. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. It's an important Paul for Paul. It's, a, it's an important point, sorry, for Paul to make to the Colossians. For if they viewed tradition or mysticism above Jesus, it would be as though the head had been replaced with alternate heads instead of the Lord Jesus, or a multi-headed church, also known as syncretism, where Jesus' authority is blended in with other beliefs. I remember as a young boy often being confused about some of the strange sayings that my grandparents would come out with. One of the most peculiar was the one about running around like a chicken with its head cut off. I never knew what that meant until I was about 13 years old on a school camp. The owner of the farm decided that these city kids needed to be educated. I was absolutely horrified. What I saw was an axe come down I closed my eyes, and then a ball of feathers, frantic and confused, ran around the paddock with girls screaming, boys laughing, and one teacher fainting. <laughs> I'll never forget it. The church is not supposed to be like that. We are not just a body. We rely upon Jesus as the head for growth and guidance. And to be sure, some churches can function like these two extremes, even today, where believers are left to decide for themselves what they think and what they feel, rather than what Jesus says through his word. 
and can sometimes resemble that unfortunate chicken, directionless and confused in faith. Or the church where dominant or traditional leaders have more influence in the direction of the church than Jesus does, or at least they compete with him. It seems to be the direction that the Colossian church was in danger of heading. The fact that Paul goes into such great detail suggests that he's addressing the real potential for division in their church. And we will discover more about this as we look into chapters 2 and 3 in the weeks ahead. Briefly though, Colossians 2 verse 8, and Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He couldn't make it any clearer, could he? Christ is the head, he gives the directions, and him alone. Clint mentioned last week in his introduction to this letter that it was addressed to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, explaining brothers as an inclusive term for all believers. It was without distinction. And in the church where Christ is the head, there is no division. So then, what could be the marks of a church where Jesus wasn't honoured as the head in all things? What might that look like? Well, imagine a church where there were separate church services allocated according to whether one was a Jew or a Gentile. Most of us would be excluded from the first one. Would Christ be seen as the head of such a church? Or imagine a church where there was a separate service for the slave and another one for the free person. Onesimus and Philemon would never get to sit together in church as brothers. Would Christ be the head of that church? No, where Christ is the head, there is no partiality. Jesus' resume also says in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Greek word for fullness is pleroma, and it means the totality or entirety of the Godhead which dwells in Christ. And he is Jesus, the pleroma of God and reconciler for God. It was in his death that he provided a way for all people to come to God and for God to show grace. His bodily death cleared away sin that prevents a right relationship with our maker. This doesn't mean that everyone has been saved, but that the way has been cleared for anyone who will trust the Lord Jesus to be saved. We can have peace with God and be reconciled to him when Christ is our Lord. Is this a part of your story or, or not quite yet? And point three, a proper view of what he's done humbles our spirit and sparks our gratitude. I want you to notice the turning point here as we look at these last three verses. Up until now, Paul's focus has been all about Jesus. Now he pivots and turns the focus towards his listeners, reminding them of what Jesus has done for them in reconciling them to God. But there's a bone in this fish that needs to be dealt with. Did you feel it? 
Listen carefully, verses 21 to 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Four times Paul uses the word you, and he presents them with the joy of being reconciled to God. Changing their status from being a sinner who stands before God as an enemy, to a saint who becomes a friend of God. And it's here that Paul uses a tiny word with colossal implications. The word if. There's that bone. They will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God if indeed they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. But the word if implies that there's a chance that they could do otherwise. What's Paul suggesting that they might otherwise do? Well, it's right there in verse 23. They might shift from the hope of the gospel that they once heard. Is this what Epaphras was so concerned about, that he would travel more than 2,000 kilometres to alert Paul? Again, the Colossians can thank God for Epaphras. This was what the Colossians were now facing. And Paul's gentle challenge to them is this. Stick with Jesus as the one and only head of the church, or entertain traditions and mysticism and lose everything. Friends, when we come to that realisation of what the Lord Jesus has done for us in reconciling us to himself, it humbles our spirit and sparks our gratitude. We want for nothing extra and are more than satisfied in him. Real faith continues stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel, not shifting about in distrust and doubt. And this too is a gentle challenge to us. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the good news. Jesus plus no other thing equals everything. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. So friends, Jesus has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross so that our sins have been covered. We are no longer enemies, but now friends with God, if he is our Lord. So we are now left to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And do you truly understand what he's done for you? As we finish here today, hear well the testimony that John records in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 how qualified and worthy the Lord Jesus is as God. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory. And blessing.
Friends, he alone is sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and ask that by your spirit you would cause us to be humbled in our spirit and that our gratitude would be sparked as we acknowledge both who you are and what you've done for each one of us. Amen. Andrew, thank you for pointing us to the Lord Jesus this morning. Thanks very much. Friends, we're going to move to a service of the Lord's Supper now. What I'm going to do first is...